This is the Moral Science Podcast, and I'm your host, Amber Cazell. In this series, I get to interview experts in my favorite subject, the scientific study of human morality, virtues and vices, evolution of morals, the judgment action gap, character development, the philosophy of morality, transcendent experiences, researchers' moral biases, cultural values, plus the obligatory trolley dilemma. We are going to talk about it all. Dr. Mark Sheskin is an assistant professor of social sciences at Minerva Schools at KGI and an instructor in the cognitive science department at Yale University. He also co-leads the Child's Lab at Yale, where he's working to harness the power of the web to conduct research studies with children. In this podcast, we discuss his involvements at Minerva, Yale, and the Child Lab, as well as his research focus on the origins of pro-social behavior and moral judgment. All right, Mark, thanks again for being willing to chat with me today. So I always kind of like to start with backstories because I find I learn a lot that I didn't know about researchers that you just don't see in these academic papers, and it kind of puts some things in perspective. So what I do know about you is that as an undergrad, you triple majored. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Okay, so what were your three majors? I did a neuroscience major, uh, which was a combination of psychology and biology. And then uh, I did uh, a theater major and a philosophy major. Okay. And how did you pick out just those three? I mean, you didn't want to go for five or? <laughs> well, so the original plan was actually, well, as original as there was, right? As a, as a first year student, I didn't have much of a plan. But the plan as it developed was just going to be a double major. Uh, in which I was doing neuroscience uh, and philosophy. Uh, but then on the side, I kept on taking theater classes uh, just because I wanted to. Um, and I was doing a lot of theater, uh, both on campus and off campus, uh, spending way more time in theaters than was probably academically advisable. <laughs> um, and uh, as I was taking more and more theater classes, I was getting rather close uh, to fulfilling the requirements of a theater major. Um, and Going into senior year, I was going to be like maybe only one class short wow. of a theater major. And I was running across um, the chair of the theater department at one point. Um, and we quickly chatted. Um, and uh, he referred to me being one of the majors. And I said, oh, actually, I'm not. Uh, and, uh, you know, he followed up on this. Um, <laughs> and uh, when it came out that like, basically, I was just going to have to take like, one random class that I wasn't intending to take uh, in the theater department. Um, and then like, you know, one other class, uh, and then I could be a theater major. I was like, you know, only one or two short, I forget the exact details. Um, he figured out with me, oh, well, you're directing a musical off campus, aren't you? And I said, oh yes, for some community theater, I'm directing something called You're in Town. And he's like, do that as an independent study with me, uh, where, you know, you'll write up some essay about what you're doing and how it went or whatever. Um, and then that in conjunction with, I think maybe I took one more theater class I wasn't intending to take. Um, I was able to fulfill the requirements of, of the theater majors. Okay, great. Um, and at that time, I wasn't sure how much of um, a focus theater would be in my life. I was just kind of enjoying it. Um, and I thought, well, I'll probably continue to do this in the long term, but not as a career. Um, mm -hmm. This is fun as a hobby. As a career, it would probably be less fun. Um, so are you are you still doing theater today? Um, no, 
you know, there's always the chance that maybe I'll do one show, you know, like per decade or something, or you know, some mm-hmm. opportunity will present itself. But the big thing that I enjoyed about doing theater was the collaboration aspect of it. You get together a group of people who have some overlap in their interests, but they also have some differences in their expertise and skills. Um, and then they work together to pull off some huge project. Uh, and that is now exactly what I get through academia. I work as part of a research team and people have similar interests overlapping in different ways, but some different skills and you work together and you pull off this big project. And so it was never so much about like the performing in front of an audience or when I did backstage stuff, you know, like, oh, I really like, you know, being able to do this creatively backstage, like all of that was fine. Um, but it really wasn't like the end goal of the performance. It was the along the way collaboration that okay. I was really enjoying. And so I've kind of focused on uh, doing that via academia because trying to, you know, fully dedicate yourself to theater and fully dedicate yourself to academia. Uh, I just didn't feel like I could do uh, either one justice uh, if I tried to do both. Yeah, sure. So then how did you, you went on to, you went straight from undergrad to your program with Paul, right? With Paul Bloom? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So how did you make the decision to move into psychology as opposed to philosophy? Or did you find that Paul Bloom was like the perfect synthesis? Well, you know, he was a really good synthesis, right? So it, it was a, I like to think it was a really good fit that I ended up with him. I, I actually, though, didn't make the decision top down to do psychology rather than philosophy. Instead, I was looking into graduate programs of both types. Um, and uh, when my list of potential graduate schools was 30 long, there were some philosophy programs on it. And then as I was uh, cutting it down to a reasonable number, I ended up with a dozen. Um, at some point, I think, you know, school number 15 uh, that finally got kicked off of the list when I got down to 12 uh, was a philosophy graduate program. I think it was UNC Chapel Hill. Mm. And the attraction there was there was this amazing... A uh, young experimental philosophy guy uh, named Josh Nob, um, mm-hmm. and then I really lucked out because the year after I joined uh, Yale's graduate program in psychology, uh, he uh, joined Yale in the cognitive science program, which is interdisciplinary between philosophy, psychology, and a bunch of other departments. Okay. Um, so I ended up being able to work some with Josh Nob, uh, even without going to that graduate school. So the short answer, though, to your question is, I didn't really choose philosophy, uh, sorry, psychology over philosophy graduate programs. Uh, I just windowed down my list and then the dozen (laughs) that made the cut uh, were all psychology. And so when you entered Yale, what, what was your plan for what to research? Like, did you already have in mind that you wanted to do, you know, moral development in particular? Yeah. So when I applied to work with Paul Bloom, uh, I hadn't done research on moral development, but I had been uh, an undergraduate research assistant in a developmental psychology lab, uh, one that focused on autism. And I had been a philosophy major focusing on ethics and had worked some um, with a philosophy professor on some ethics topics, um, you know, kind of research. Um, And I made this pitch in my application materials, I really want to combine these. Um, and do research on moral development in children. Um, and so that was, uh, that was the plan. Uh, and I was also excited by other things at Yale, like, oh, there's this Professor Lori Santos who does stuff with capuchin monkeys, and that might be cool. And I spent some time working with her. Um, but yeah, the plan was moral, moral development. 
And now you study moral development primarily through an evolutionary lens. Is that fair to say, or does that mischaracterize you? Um, I think it's a fair characterization. I mean, the amount that in any given moment I'm thinking about evolutionary theory is going to vary. Um, really, the larger framework that I think about this through is always Tinbergen's four questions, um, which I can just quickly describe in please case someone do. watching this. Yeah. Yes, I'm not um, familiar, so please do. Yeah, so often if you want to complete a uh, picture of something, uh, let's say, you know, what is vision about? Um, you want to look at it from four different directions. So you might look at... Oh, are these the Mars levels of understanding? That's different. Um, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Sorry, um, go on. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Um, so one thing that you might look at, um, and I can see why you were thinking uh, Mars levels here. Um, <laughs> so one thing you might look at is the proximate mechanism. Uh, right. So, oh, there's this retina and there's this optic nerve. And, you know, what's the actual thing in a particular organism you could poke with a stick? Um, another thing that you might look at is the development of that. Um, so in the year 1984, um, there was no Mark Sheskin visual system. Um, my birth year is 1985. So I'm going a year before that. Uh, right. In the universe, there was no such thing as the Mark Sheskin optic nerve, retina, etc. And now uh, in the year 2019, uh, there is some fully developed, not quite fully functioning um, Mark Sheskin visual system. So how did that come to be? The developmental question, the ontogenetic question. Um, you might also be thinking, okay, but how did the eye develop over the course of the history of animal species? Um, so at some point in the history of the earth, there was not a retina, an optic nerve, etc. How did we get uh, the vertebrate uh, visual system uh, from a time when there wasn't anything like that at all. And then the fourth thing is, what function does it serve? Um, so this is where you say things like, oh, you know, having a visual system really helps avoid predators and seek out food and not walk off of a cliff. Um, and so these are kind of the four different things that you might look at if you want to understand the visual system. The proximate, the ontogenetic, the phylogenetic, uh, which I didn't use the jargon for a moment ago, and then sort of the evolutionary uh, adaptive function of it. Um, and the hope is that as you learn more about any one of these, it forms a coherent picture with the rest of it. Um, and sometimes learning about one will shed additional light on one of the other ones. And so I never want to go to someone who's doing research on any particular one of these and say, hey, you definitely need to pay attention to the other three. Um, but sometimes it's going to be helpful. Um, so for example, in my own work, uh, a project uh, that I did uh, that had some very cool people involved with it, including one named Amber, oh, um, was, uh, <laughs> was looking at um, the slow emergence of fairness motivation in young children. Uh, so even at an age in which children might say, yeah, if there's four toys, I guess I should only get two and another child should get two, you know, they, could, they should kind of be shared equally. Um, there's an age at which it's quite common to say, ah, but I'll take the two better ones if there's some quality differential in them. Um, so that's all about the development of fairness, the ontogeny of fairness. Um, but there's some cool ways that it might fit in with what the adaptive function of fairness is. So there's a lot of argument, argu argumentation, that was the word I was looking for, um, from a wide variety of people. Uh, I tend to point uh, towards Tomasello for this. Uh, Michael Tomasello, um, saying the reason why humans have such a strong motivation towards fairness is because it helps us coordinate 
with one another across a huge variety of different tasks. So if you can decide, you know, who are you going to operate a bakery with? Um, you know, you're going to work four days a week. The other person will work three days a week. Therefore, you'll cover all seven. Um, this sort of stable equilibrium that makes sense for everyone is the person working four days gets maybe four-sevenths of the profit. The person working three days gets three-sevenths of the profit. Um, and being able to coordinate uh, sort of in fair ways um, helps us do really, really well and collaborate across a huge variety of contexts. Um, but this is a very adult thing. Um, right, like being chosen for a collaboration as someone who will behave fairly is not something that a two-year-old has to worry about. Um, they're not good at collaborating to begin with. Like that's not the world that they live in. Um, they don't really have skills, you know, um, that are going to be helpful across, you know, especially if you look, you know, in the ancestral environment, uh, you know, hunting, gathering, a two-year-old can't do much. Um, likewise, they don't need to. They get resources for free um, from their adult caregivers. And so if fairness is a good thing for an individual human to be doing, um, because it helps them get chosen for collaborations, um, it's something that maybe should only come online as the investment they're getting from their caregivers decreases. Um, so maybe suddenly you have a younger sibling, they're the focus of a lot of the free resources, Suddenly, you're six, seven, eight, ten, twelve years old. Um, you can productively contribute to a lot of collaborations, um, and so as the amount of free resources you get goes down, as your ability to collaborate goes up, suddenly behaving fairly and being chosen uh, as a trustworthy, moral, fair member of a collaboration becomes much, much more important. And so, this vision of what fairness does evolutionarily, like why it became something that humans have in our brains. Um, is kind of consistent with the developmental story that we see. Um, and so, you know, I have some papers saying, oh, you know, this fits together in this particular way. I think it makes some predictions about some things we might research uh, in ontogeny. Um, I think, you know, also maybe it makes some predictions about what the adult mechanism is like. Um, Can and you tell so, me a little bit more about yeah. those? Like what the papers are and maybe just quick premise of some of the predictions you think it would make? Sure, sure. So um, one, uh, one paper, which unfortunately I, I think is a little bit dense by itself um, because of word restrictions, is a trends in cognitive science paper um, mm -hmm. that I wrote uh, with Nicola Bomard and Coralie Chevalier uh, and uh, grad student Stefan. Um, and uh, it lays out uh, in, uh, I don't think I fully succeeded in, you know, making the argument clear in the number of words we had, but it lays out kind of the logic that I just went through mm -hmm. um, about uh, how as the number of resources you get, you know, the ages that you get, uh, the resources go down uh, and your ability to collaborate goes up, that's when you'll see fairness ramping up over time. I think a really interesting future direction for research is looking at the interplay, therefore, of how much of the timeline is built in versus how much is flexible um, and what sorts of things it's going to be uh, reactive to. Um, we know that there are different things about childhood environment um, that really influence uh, both developmental timeline and adult state on average across the population. So if you live in an environment that has fewer resources uh, maybe less resource security, you're not sure what to rely on. Uh, this potentially has all sorts of influences in the long run about how you're going to make cost-benefit analysis 
analyses, um, especially about like time discounting. You know, you can get some reward now that's moderately sized or a larger reward later that um, you have to wait for. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the sort of thing that might really be influenced in adaptive ways um, by, uh, by your early environment. Um, and I have kind of like a side ax to grind here about sometimes I'll read papers or commentary saying that people with fewer resources, uh, you know, played some experimental games uh, and uh, behavioral economic games, uh, and they made less than optimal decisions, um, mm -hmm. you know, taking the smaller reward now rather, rather than waiting for the larger one. Uh, but of course, these games are designed, these behavioral economic games, uh, when these points are being made, um, with lots of like security and predictability in mind. Um, you know, like the researcher says, and I know I'm trustworthy, I of course was going to pay them later. Um, and uh, that's not necessarily the environment that everyone lives in. Mm -hmm. um, and so I have a pretty strong prediction um, that a lot of the differences that you see on average when you look across populations around the world with different amounts of resource security or overall levels of wealth, um, are the same cognitive mechanism in everyone's brain, the same, you know, mechanism uh, that's a species typical mechanism, uh, sort of behaving properly uh, in different sorts of environment. If on average your environment is one in which uh, rewards that you wait for might not be showing up with as much predictability, and then you're in some weird experimental context, um, well, the heuristic that works in your daily environment is probably the one you're going to use. If you're in a very different environment, you are just in the same way going to use whatever heuristic is the one that usually works for you, and you just happen to be in an environment where the researcher has set it up so that the proper heuristic to use is the one that one set of the population has rather than another set. We're not learning anything deep about, you know, population differences here. Have you, um, there was a paper that I think was trying to make essentially the same point in a slightly different context. Um, it was a paper about reinterpreting that famous marshmallow experiment. And they made, do you know what I'm, you're nodding. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that they had kind of argued. Do you know who the researchers were on that? Oh, uh, my memory for proper nouns is terrible. I'll, I'll try to go back well, and look it up. I mean, the original marshmallow task is Walter Michel. Um, that, right. that, that name I can say. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, the, the back and forth on it. Now, I mean, I want to I wanna be a little bit cautious here because um, I vaguely was aware of this back and forth. I read some things about it, but I could easily be talking, you know, outside of my area of expertise if I start, you know, saying, oh, and, you know, this detailed argument that they made here versus this detailed argument they should have made. But my, my perception of it, um, you know, which maybe would be useful for someone to hear. This is someone who, you know, vaguely was aware of this and here's their take home message. So, you know, um, but, so, you know, maybe someone involved with it could, uh, could look at this and say, oh no, he got it completely wrong. But that tells them something about, you know, what's yeah. into the popular consciousness about it. Right. Um, is that it's the initial framing on it, at least from some people was, oh, these are wrong because we found, you know, that other things are doing the work. Um, the things, you know, like, can you fill in the details here? Uh, I, I, I suddenly am very cautious about misstating For results. Me, oh, I, I only know vaguely about it. My understanding was that they were saying more than self-control was predictive of, like, whether or not a child would eat a marshmallow was more, like, parental consistency and how likely 
their authority, the authority figures in their lives were to follow through on things that they had said. So I think they were trying to, and I'm not sure how they, you can tell we're in academics because we're trying to be so careful about our words, but basically the gist, I think. Yeah, I mean, this, this is, so, right, this is someone's research that they put a lot of time into and they know more about than us and we want to be super cautious. Right. Um, but basically, I, my, my take-home message at a very broad level was they provided a mechanism for what was always the story. Um, it wasn't a competing explanation. It was an explanation on another level. Yeah. Um, and like, yes, if you have an environment in which uh, you can't always be sure of what's going to happen, this is going to have all sorts of downstream consequences for how you approach all sorts of things. Right. Um, because if you don't know if that second marshmallow is coming anyways, then it might be rational to eat the marshmallow right now in front of you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I feel like, you know, if I were to spend 20 minutes reviewing this, I could, I could state what I hope is the argument we're like approaching from our angles much more clearly, but alas, <laughs> uh, it was a pop quiz and I feel like I only scored an 80%. Yeah, no, you're doing um. great. <laughs> um, those, yeah, that's, so that's, that's interesting. Um, I've been spending some more time kind of thinking about this and how the, that similar critique applies to behavioral economics at large, that we seem to, I should say that field seems to be interested in this concept of what is rational or is like the correct answer or something in the first place. And it might be a misguided framing from the outset. Um, I don't know, maybe it's not, but it is interesting that maybe what is valuable to us is not just, you know, the numbers as they calculate them on a paper sitting behind their laptop at a desk, you know? So. Yeah. Well, I, I do think that it ties into this larger discussion, especially with behavioral economic stuff of when you do a study and you get some results, what does that really tell us about human psychology? Um, and uh, one of the, I think test cases for this is the dictator game mm -hmm. where you bring people into the lab and they say, uh, Hey, here's $10. There's you, there's another participant. How are you going to split it? And a reasonable chunk of people, let's say in the United States say, Oh, I'll split it 50, 50. Uh, so, you know, some other people do 40, 60, or uh, they take 60 for themselves, 60, 40 or 70, 30, mm -hmm. you know, some will just take all of it or the maximum amount they're allowed. Um, okay. But like, what should we do with this information? And it turns out, that um, the story becomes much more complicated if you expand out the option sets. Hmm. So for example, if you give people the opportunity to take money away from the other person, in addition to give, you know, split money in some way, well, then they take not all of the other person's money. <laughs> um, and so maybe what's going on is that in situations like this, people are reading off what, is the range of behaviors I might do. And what would a terrible person do who I'm not? And yeah. I'll do more than that. And this reminds me of, and I must not be the first person to make this point. There's, um, there's like a lot of uh, credit card machines now, like, you know, you take a cab or you're paying for something at a coffee shop and then it pops up with how much do you want to tip? Yeah. And, you know, it'll be like 10%, 15%, 20%. Um, of course choose the middle option. Um, because I'm not a monster, I'm not going to choose the lowest one. I'm also not, you know, some foolhardy person who's going to choose the, the highest one. I'm going to choose the middle one. But it doesn't matter what the middle option is, right? They could make the range 20, 25, 30, and then I would probably choose 25. 
Yeah. Um, and so how you interpret people's behaviors when you give them some option set um, in some sort of situation, whether it's a behavioral economics experiment in a lab or a credit card machine at a cafe, um, needs to be done with some caution. Yeah. And it's not to say that you can't get cool information out of it, um, but how you interpret it needs to be different than just reading it at face value and saying, oh, you know, the amount that people want to tip is 15% because when I gave them the options 10, 15, 20, they chose 15 like right, people are constantly reading the context clues off. Absolutely. Yeah, there's major anchoring effects going on, right? Like there that it's just like when you ask people to estimate the length of the Mississippi River, you know that famous that famous kind of study and people could say oh, between zero miles and a million miles long. And then they know that they've got the range, but they don't. They assume that there's this this area of reasonability. So it sounds like you're suggesting, okay, well, what you make possible in the game, the rules of the dictatorship game, imply a certain, they anchor a certain realm of what's reasonable or not reasonable behavior. Absolutely. And I think this fits into a lot more research and daily life experience, including going back to famous things like the Milgram obedience shock studies. Mm. Um, so, you know, people often uh, know just the headline of this, which was people were brought in and like they were shocking someone who wasn't actually a participant, but they thought it, they were, uh, and they like basically shocked them to death. And oh my goodness, people are terrible. Um, but when you look at videos of people actually doing this, they were not having fun. Um, even though, you know, a surprising percent went all the way to the end and probably killed the other person, uh, the fake other person, uh, right. the actor confederate other person. Um, it's not because they were sadistic and they were enjoying this. Um, what happened is these were people brought into an unfamiliar environment where they weren't sure how they were supposed to be behaving. Um, and they were told by someone who was very confident and in a position of authority, this is the context for how you should be behaving. Um, and humans on the whole are really, really influenced by this sort of stuff. Uh, it ties into the bystander effect as well. Uh, you know, someone has an emergency and you're the only one around, you're probably going to help them. But if there's a bunch of other people standing around doing nothing, you say, oh, is that what we do here? We stand around and we do nothing? Like, am I really going to be the one to go against the flow and like go out there and do something? Um, yeah. And so in just so many circumstances, we read off of um, our you know, cultural expectations that we've built up from seeing what other people do, from the people we observe in a similar situation, forever cues we're given uh, from the situation itself. Oh, there's a 10% to 15% to 20% tip option. Um, you know, how is it that we're expected to behave here? And then that's what we do. Yeah. Um, by the way, on the side, I quickly Googled the, the, the marshmallow task situation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I found like a, a key sort of, you know, like this is the sort of thing I was seeing. Um, okay. So it's, uh, I, I, I hate to call out things only to criticize them, but I happen to be looking at something from Vox. Um, and uh, the, the title is The Marshmallow Test Said Patience Was a Key to Success. A New Replication Tells Us S'more. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> fun. Uh, and it, it frames it in terms of like the replication crisis. You know, the famous psychology test gets roasted in the new era of replication. Um, and like a key line from this popular news coverage um, is the following. Oh, no, I scrolled up to the top to read that title. Um, and now um, I need to quickly find, find your spot. Right. Yeah. So um, the correlation almost vanished when the researchers control for factors like family background and intelligence. Mm. Um, and, uh, but sure, family background is going to influence how much you're going to do delay of gratification. 
right. which is going to influence all sorts of other things down the line. Right. Um, and as I was saying before, when I said I have this side axe to grind, um, it's going to influence them in ways that are probably useful. If you live in an environment um, in which delay of gratification often isn't going to make as much sense, and then you're pulled into some experiment or marshmallow task, and you use that heuristic, um, and then this has all sorts of you know, influences down the line, it's not as though if you're in an environment where delay of gratification doesn't make sense, and only, if only we could get you to do delay of gratification, you'd be better off. Probably you'd be worse off. Um, I think the thing that's often missing from discussions of things like delay of gratification or making, quote, optimal decisions in behavioral economic games uh, and just financial decisions overall in life um, is that it could be the case. I I'm not going to claim that the cognitive mechanisms are perfectly well calibrated always, um, especially as people have changing life situations, but it is perhaps often going to be the case that having the heuristic that is an appropriate match for your environment is going to do better for you than having a heuristic that is not a good match for your environment. If we take someone who has grown up in an environment of huge amounts of security and has all of the quote optimal you know, financial investment uh, heuristics in their head and we put them in a situation with uh, high resource variability, low resource security, low resources overall, they're probably going to do much worse. Uh, than someone who has the appropriate heuristics for that environment. Mm. Um, so anyway, this links up with that side axe that I have. have yeah. But yeah, the, the, the Vox and other popular coverage of it, linking it into the replication crisis, just seems wrong to me. Mm. Um, we have found something that makes perfect sense uh, based on thinking about the proximate mechanism and the, you know, the ontogeny of it and the right. evolutionary background of what it's doing, uh, drawing together at least you know, three Tinbergen levels. Um, yeah of saying, yeah, your background is going to influence your delay of gratification heuristics is going to influence a lot of the rest of your life, um, but probably in a way that is useful for you. Okay. So of those four levels, of Bergen's four levels, which, which levels do you focus on most and which do you think you neglect the most? So my training is as a developmental psychologist. Like, you know, that I was in a developmental PhD program. Um, and so, uh, when I think of, uh, as part of a research collaboration, what skills do I have that I can bring to the team? Uh, it's often going to be, you know, we have some questions that we want to ask children. Mm -hmm. um, how can we make these questions easiest for the children to understand? <laughs> how can we make these engaging for the children so they'll enjoy the activity some? You know, what's the age range that we can expect these questions to be uh, usable with? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, I kind of am on the ontogeny side of like, that's the skill set that I can bring to the team. And then I know enough about proximate mechanisms and phylogeny and, and also, you know, maybe some evolutionary theory um, so that I can discuss these things intelligently with other people. Hmm. Um, and so I don't think it's so much neglecting them as kind of knowing where my strengths lie. Okay. Um, I'm very happy to be discussing research and collaborating with people who know what all sorts of different brain regions are called mm. um, or, you know, really understand evolutionary theory in a way more sophisticated way than I do and don't have their heartbeat spike a little bit every time they say something about evolutionary theory because they're concerned, am I phrasing this in exactly the perfect way or am I like accidentally phrasing this slightly wrong? Um, so yeah, I, I look out for collaborators who, who have the different 
uh, skill sets that I don't, that I'm not as strong in. Yeah. So as you've been researching, you do mostly research on fairness and cooperation, right? The development of fairness and cooperation? Yes. I mean, historically, that's been kind of my first author studies have been focused on that. Um, As time has gone on, um, I've become more and more involved with um, implementing a video chat platform for online kid research. And the studies that are run on that platform um, are much more varied than just, you know, my narrow focus. Um, so a lot of the studies that are being run on uh, this platform, thechildlab.com, um, are about uh, children's preferences for different sorts of scientific explanations, how children understand uh, causal mechanism, uh, and you know, very much not uh, moral psychology subjects. Particular. Um, but I'm super excited, uh, again, with this kind of collaborative uh, yeah. approach to things, where there's people who are experts in this sort of research. You know, they know the literature backwards and forwards. They know exactly what are the cool questions to ask. Uh, And then I get to specialize uh, in something that I enjoy, which is, okay, how can we best be asking these questions uh, to children, especially in this new medium of doing it over video chat instead of in person? Okay, that's so cool. So I want to get to that, but just a little bit more on the fairness and cooperation stuff. Um, Sure. Like, what... what does what are the implications of us understanding how these morals and ethics develop in children? How do you take knowledge of that and apply it in a way that's meaningful to the world? Well, again, I'll be a cautious academic and I'll say, "Ooh, you know, like that, that which is not my exact area of expertise. What do I want to go out on a limb and say about that when there's people who are experts in that? Um, I started off kind of going back uh, to my background, uh, doing both a philosophy and a neuroscience major. Um, there was a time as, as, a, as an early undergraduate where I kind of had the idea of moral psychology and thought maybe I had invented the field. Um, where, you know, because I was like doing this neuroscience major with a bunch of psych classes. And okay, this is about how people think about things. And then I was taking like ethics classes in the philosophy department. Okay, this is what's, you know, actually right and wrong. And I was like, wait a second, you could combine these into like, what do people think is right and wrong? Um, And, you know, at the time I'd heard of things like Lawrence Kohlberg and his stages of moral development. Like I was aware that there were like people, you know, like in the history of psychology who had like done some stuff. Um, But I can be forgiven a little bit because, you know, this was enough years ago that moral psychology was not as... As big as uh, it is now. Yeah, as, as, but you know, even then, uh, I, I quickly discovered, oh no, I have not invented this at all. <laughs> oh, this, this is a big thing. And, and it was exciting because it means like, okay, I can like, you know, apply to graduate programs and do research with cool people who are doing this sort of stuff. Right. Um, but my interest really was at that very sort of, I don't know whether to say like high level abstract or like really low level, like, you know, just like foundational. Um, but hey, I've learned what a bunch of philosophers say is right and wrong, and you know, what is fair and unfair. What do people actually think? Um, mm-hmm. And often that's like still the level at which I'm engaged with it. It's not the, you know, how can we make the world a better place with this okay. sort of thing. Um, but of course, over time, I have moved in that direction because um, it's a very interesting direction. It's a very useful direction. 
Um, but I try not to go the like 17 leaps to say, and therefore here's what our educational policy should be to you know, <laughs> have the most moral adults around uh, who are currently second graders. A lot of um, researchers do that though. And it's starting to bug me more and more. <laughs> um, yeah. I think I just used to be less aware of it, but I did this research project recently on some of the underlying assumptions that moral psychologists have when they conduct their studies. And this kind of relates back to our anchoring conversation too, but it's amazing how much research is taken and then, and then, you know, slapped evidence-based practice on it and then pitched to a bunch of politicians and, and stuff like that. I'm like, oh no, there's yeah. so much to be done still. And I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, yeah, so I've gotten a little bit into uh, thinking about how to apply uh, the research on fairness. So one example, this is not focused on the child research so much as adult research uh, mm -hmm. done, in fact, by other people. Uh, but this is um, a theoretical paper I wrote with Paul Bloom and Christina Starmans. Mm -hmm. um, it's Starman, Sheskin, Bloom. Uh, and uh, if, if, you know, if you're trying to find it. Um, Thank you. So what, what we argued um, in this Starman's et al. paper um, is uh, a few things, but the thing I'll focus on is that one useful way to move a lot of the discussion forward about income inequality is to be a little bit more precise in what the goal is. Because the goal that's attractive to most people is not a society in which we have exact income and wealth equality. Mm -hmm. Everyone has exactly the same level of wealth. Everyone has exactly the same level of income. And it, I, I think seeing this is, is easy once you think through some examples. So let's say that you've got an emergency room doctor who's working 70 hours a week, um, really stressful conditions, maybe doesn't enjoy it at all, saving lots of lives. And then you have me. I work rather hard, but I don't think I work 70 hours a week and I really enjoy my job and I save probably no lives doing it. Um, so should this emergency room doctor be making more money than me? And I think the answer is yes for all sorts of reasons. You, know, you might just think they deserve it. You might think this is uh, important because it will motivate other people to become emergency room doctors, whereas they wouldn't do it without the higher compensation. Um, and so overall society is just better if we motivate people to do some of these jobs via higher compensation. A world in which we say, no, everyone must be making identical amounts of money would be a worse role for everyone because we'd have fewer people being emergency room doctors. Hmm. A second completely different example, um, J.K. Rowling has a lot of money. Um, now let's say that I write a book and I publish a book. Should I earn as much money for my book as she made for Harry Potter? Probably not. Um, you know, I'd like to think it would be a good book if I published one, but probably I should not make as much money as J.K. Rowling did on Harry Potter for whatever my book is. You should make more. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> well, I'll, 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 say, I'll say she should make more, but should she make as much as she did? Um, so this is where we can say that the conversation needs to be more nuanced. Uh, various people should be making more money than me. But mm -hmm. should J.K. Rowling have quite as many castles as she does? You know, maybe not. Um, and so if in the fight against the extremely atrociously high levels of income inequality we have, if we can uh, 
do a better job of packaging it, not as what we're looking for is exact equality. Um, that might be more useful for various reasons, including there are people who are being really productive in society and making lots of money who hear, you know, you shouldn't have all of your money. Um, and uh, they say, wait, you know, what are you trying to do? I've done so much. I work so hard. Um, and if what they were being told is, yeah, yeah, you should be richer than almost everyone else, just you know, maybe not quite as rich as you are, you know, let's have a conversation about what should the level of income inequality be, what's maybe the minimum that people should have, uh, universal income is gaining steam uh, in various countries, um, what's maybe the maximum that people should have, what should the tax rate be. Um, and this is again a situation in which reading off of your environment cues, you know, an ongoing thing that keeps on coming up in this conversation is really important where the tax rates have been radically different across American history. And they're radically different across all sorts of different countries. And I kind of am distressed by uh, the framing often in politics of like, there's one party that's for lower taxes and there's one party for higher taxes. Mm. Um, that's weird. Like, yeah. Why isn't there well-specified tax policies? And if the current tax rate, to simplify things and just like, let's pretend there's one tax rate. If the current tax rate is lower than the level you have from first principles and empirical research systematically figured out as the correct amount, you know, if this is the tax rate that should exist and we're currently here, then you're for higher taxes. But if we're here, then you're for lower taxes. Um, but people just kind of like read off of their environment, like, you know, oh, the tax rate is like whatever it is. And then there's the party that's for having it be marginally lower and the party that's for having it be marginally higher. And, you know, you know which party you align with and then you just kind of go from there. Um, and just kind of like reading off these simplistic cues from your environment. Uh, I think we'd be in better shape if we had a much more systematic discussion of how should we set up society? What level of fair inequality should there be? Um, because in fact, uh, having exact equality would be unfair. It would be unfair to have this ER doctor earn as little as me. Yeah. Um, so how do you suggest having that type of a systematic conversation? Um, I mean, could the argument be made that that's already happening? It's just, well, I guess I shouldn't say systematic, but that the conversation is happening by hashing it out in these papers with different goals in mind. Is having one unified goal realistic in the long run it seems like that's yeah i think i think it's tough um and you know the most i've done th this is you know this is like the most applied paper i've been involved with okay um and i think it was a reasonably modest point saying hey if you aren't thinking of these nuances the fact that exact equality is likely to be unfair and bad for society in various ways and most people when you ask them don't say they want exact equality Instead, what's probably best for society, what people actually want, what's probably fair, is a level of inequality that represents the unequal contributions to society, perhaps constrained with, there's a certain maximum people should get and there's a certain minimum that people should get. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if this isn't on your mind, hey, maybe it should be on your mind. Mm -hmm. um, and then how you get more people in positions of authority, whether that's political authority or, you know, public leadership authority or just cultural consciousness or, you know, how you get more people to be thinking about this and implementing this, I, I don't know. Um, you know, we, we said this in a journal. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm saying it to you now. 
Did um, you get any pushback? Just out of curiosity, since politics is so heated these days, did you have to deal with any angry people coming at you with pitchforks? I have not received any angry emails that I can remember. You know, maybe I'll get an angry email from someone who watches and says, I sent you an angry email and you ignored me. Um, <laughs> I have seen um, some people responding in various ways. There was recently a blog post that I read um, where someone was arguing mostly against the empirical work that we were citing by others. Mm -hmm. So there was work cited that we were citing from others where, you know, you give people uh, the choice between how much level of inequality should there be in the world. And I'll actually, des I'll describe a fictional study. Because, um, you know, I'm just trying to, like, illustrate the point. I'm not trying to pick on any particular researcher. So imagine a fictional study where I say to people, um, hey, you know, you might want exact fairness, but, uh, oh, sorry, exact equality. Everyone gets the same. Or you might think that some people should be getting more, you know, ER doctor, JK Rowling, etc. So what level of inequality do you think there should be in the world? Um, should there be 0%, 10%, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, whatever? Um, and framing the question in this way um, might uh, increase people's selection of uh, unequal choices because you've given them an option set that's so wide um, and like it's only, you know, like one particular answer that shows exactly 0%. And mm. if you ask enough people that question, how many are going to choose exactly 0%? Um, but if you phrase things, you know, in a different way, you might get different responses. Mm. Um, Again, this links into the recurring theme of people pay attention to their option sets and the cues, and then they respond based on that. So what? Mm -hmm. So this blog post brought up, you know, what exactly is the real level? We somehow asked neutrally mm -hmm. um, the level of inequality that people want. Um, and if I'm remembering correctly, this blog post was strongly arguing that no, no, people really have a preference for equality. Uh, the research that Starman's et al. are, are citing uh, is just wrong. Mm -hmm. um, I was not fully convinced by this um, because I totally believe um, that you can push around people's responses based on the framing. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm also fully convinced that people believe an ER doctor should make more than I should um, for all of the reasons described. Um, right. And then it's a matter of what we do with this. Um, and, you know, some of the blog posts did come off as angry. Um, I think at some point it was saying something like, um, you know, uh, the Starmans at all cite this other result that, you know, CEOs should not be making the ridiculous amount more that they make. They should only be making 10 times more. And they misleadingly say that this is evidence for uh, not wanting exact equality. And I'm thinking, yeah, that, that is what that is. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not sure why you're angry with me about it and why it's misleading. Uh, uh, <laughs> if it's misleading, I've misled myself as well. Um, so yeah, I, I, have, I have gone out searching and I have found more than zero amount of pushback. Okay. Um, but, but to some extent, it's people either saying, you know, yes, we already knew this, this is obvious, in which case, great, you weren't my audience. Um, or people saying, oh, okay, sure. Um, yeah. This does seem straightforward. Yeah. Um, okay, well, let's, let's switch gears. I want to talk about the child lab and also about Minerva. So, um, and we never finished your your background story. So you went from Yale to then Paris for a couple of years for your postdoc. And yeah. that was largely focusing on some of the things we were discussing earlier with fairness and cooperation. And then you came back to Yale as a researcher in the cognitive science department, right? 
Right, right. And is that where you developed the child lab? Yeah, so um, my position um, at Yale was uh, a research and lecturer position. Um, it existed mostly to teach some required courses in the cognitive science program. Um, and uh, then I'm kind of like, a, I was a free agent to do research as, as I wanted. Cool. Um, and there's been various people at, at a bunch of different schools for a while um, who have been thinking through different ways to harness the power of the internet for developmental psychology. Mm. Um, as you and, and maybe you know, many people watching this know, uh, Amazon Mechanical Turk has been a really big force in some areas of adult research mm. uh, where lots of researchers post surveys uh, for people to take and then they earn some small amount of money for taking them. Um, and there's various advantages of the Amazon Mechanical Turk platform. There's various disadvantages. Um, and people have been thinking, oh gosh, we could do something similar with children. Um, and there are an increasing number of uh, different teams implementing different solutions. So for example, there's a team at uh, MIT called Look It. Uh, this is headed by uh, Kim Scott, uh, working with uh, Professor Laura Schultz. Um, and they are doing studies where um, it's presented by the computer, um, like I think in a web page or something. Um, mm -hmm. And then um, the webcam on the participant's computer is recording, um, like maybe where an infant is looking who's watching the screen. Um, mm -hmm. So as a parent with a young infant, um, you're holding them up to the computer. Maybe you've got your back turned so you can't influence them. Um, and then depending upon where they look and for how long at the screen, that can tell uh, the look at team who reviews the video later mm -hmm. um, and maybe has software automatically coding it later. Um, something, you know, about what the infant is thinking. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, you know, start off by saying this is part of a wider uh, trend yeah. Yeah, of, of more and more people thinking of different ways to do stuff via video chat. Um, or sorry, not via video chat, just using the internet. Right. Um, so then Professor Frank Kyle at Yale uh, for a while has been saying, hey, we could be doing stuff on video chat. Um, and a couple of people in his lab uh, started putting some effort into trying to figure out a good way to do it. Um, and uh, there was some movement on it before I got involved. Um, and then it kind of died off. Um, and then I got involved. Um, and I think very much partly due to the hard work that happened before me, um, but then perhaps due to some hard work uh, and ideas that I put in, mm -hmm. um, we've successfully gotten it off the ground. Um, where, uh, let me look at some tab where I'm monitoring interns in the background. Um, yeah, so, you know, we've got uh, a bunch of kids scheduled for tomorrow. We've got, um, like, 18 kids scheduled to participate tomorrow um, via video chat. Um, and uh, the way that it works um, is not what we're doing here. Um, so you might imagine, uh, you know, if... If you're running a kid in a museum, you're, you know, you're showing them things, you're pointing to things, and maybe like running via video chat means like something like what we're doing here, and then I'm like holding stuff up to the screen. And I'm <laughs> um, in fact, what we've ended up implementing um, is most studies take place uh, via a shared PowerPoint presentation. Um, so the two little video chat windows are all the way in the upper right and really small. They're there to do a little bit of social engagement, um, but the majority of the screen real estate uh, is taken up by a shared PowerPoint presentation Got where it. you're showing the kid pictures, you're showing them movies, uh, and then you're asking them questions. Uh, and we've come up with various best practices about how to implement the studies uh, so that they're as easy for the children to do as possible. So, for example, a lot of the questions uh, have color-coded answers. 
and the kid learns they just need to say blue or green. You know, there's always the blue answer, the green answer, uh, and that's all that they need to say. Uh, and then study to study, you have a lot of cognitive uh, overhead taken off by uh, the, you know, they know it's expected of them, they only have, ever have to say this. Um, so, so yeah, that's kind of the, the broad outlines of what's going on there. That's very cool. So the child lab is to serve Frank Kyle's lab in particular, is that right? Or is it open to other researchers? So uh, right now, uh, every project that's being run on it is in collaboration with Professor Frank Kyle at Yale. Okay. Um, and uh, a lot of it is funded by grant money he has to be running particular studies. Okay. Um, so, you know, the grant agency, you know, it wasn't specified when the grant was acquired, will this be run in a school or will this be run in a museum or will this be run in a park? Mm -hmm. It's just we're going to run studies on these sorts of uh, topics. Um, and then we happen to be running them via this platform. Okay. Um, the question of how to best scale up and share uh, these solutions is something that um, various people doing this sort of stuff uh, mm -hmm. are currently trying to figure out. Um, I've been in some conversation with, for example, Kim Scott at Look It and other people who are running different types of platforms I haven't even described about how to best scale these up. Mm -hmm. um, and so Look It is, I think, really doing amazing things, trying to open up their platform. Um, the thing that makes something like thechildlab.com uh, tricky for large-scale scale collaboration is that every study is run in real time via video chat by a real researcher. Right. Um, and so if you've got, you know, I'm sure that I will get the details wrong on this because I'm not involved with Look It, right? But like in the abstract, I imagine, you know, Look It has, you know, a bunch of bandwidth, you know, like server bandwidth, um, and they've got a bunch of participants coming through. And the additional cost of hosting a study that someone else creates is very marginal. Because mm -hmm. um, it's not, you know, you do whatever it takes on the back end to load it in, um, and, you know, whatever administrative overhead there is on that. Um, but then actually collecting the data happens without any researcher time. Um, right. Since we are asking in real time all of the questions, it means if someone says, hey, I'd love to run a study on your platform, well, okay, you know, it's what does the collaboration look like yeah. in order to make that make sense? Yeah. Um, and how much, you know, how much do I want to be a researcher who's doing my own research versus someone running a platform for the mm -hmm. benefit of everyone? Um, I say this partly because I don't know the answer yet. Yeah. Um, but it's very non-trivial in that way. And it's not like we have any code to share. Mm -hmm. um, what we're doing uh, I mean, it ends up being non-trivial to implement, but other people could be doing it. Right. Um, you know, you can share a PowerPoint, choose your software to choose the PowerPoint, you know, yeah. recruit some participants. Um, we've over time built up ways that we think are good to do this. Uh, and we've published a method paper. It's available on psych archive, um, where, you know, people can see some of what we're doing. Um, so, you know, it's this combination of either, yes, go, go and do it yourself. Um, or, oh, you want to do it with us. Okay. That's going to okay. be difficult to figure out how to, how to actually do. I see. Um, so you mentioned that you had developed a lot of best practices. Do you have documentation on that, that you'd be able to point listeners to? So we've got this method paper that we posted on psych archive. Um, and, uh, there's a publication pipeline coming out um, of, you know, papers that uh, are accepted um, or, you know, under revised review or we're hoping to submit soon or data collection. And, you know, so over time, we'll be publishing more and more papers. Um, 
But a lot of it really is captured by um, giving children uh, discrete choices that they know are coming, um, which really has much more importance in a video chat interaction, including, so I'll give you one example of this, which is, um, let's say that there's a slight hiccup in the internet connection. We've had at least one chatting now. Yes. Um, and you're interacting with a five-year-old. So you could be relying on the five-year-old to say, oh, I'm sorry, the internet connection lagged for a moment. Could you please repeat <laughs> the question? Um, or you could be looking for the parent to say, oh, sorry, the full question didn't come through. Could you repeat that? Um, which has, you know, number one, the parent might not be, do that. Number two, we actually are not looking for the parent to be very involved at all. Mm -hmm. um, parents are almost always sitting next to their child, um, not interacting, just being present. Um, after they do the informed consent, sometimes they do wander off and that's fine too. Um, but for the most part, we do everything possible to structure the interactions so that the parent knows they should not be involved. And the more we have them not involved, the less we have to worry about whether they're influencing stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so having studies uh, have a standard set of options, which are almost always color-coded, means that the child learns that the researcher is going to be saying a bunch of stuff and there's going to be a bunch of stuff on my screen. And then when the researcher is silent, I'm expected to say blue or green. And so that's what happens, even if there's been a little hiccup in the internet connection. Um, and what this does is it adds some noise to the data because sometimes maybe the child hasn't heard the full question and they're answering randomly or they're answering via some side bias that they have when in doubt choose green or something. Um, but it means that the interaction continues smoothly and nicely and is, you know, not held up by awkward back and forth. Um, and that's a trade-off. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we could say, oh, we don't want to be having that additional little bit of noise injected into the data. Um, at the cost of having a less fluid interaction uh, where the child always needs to be, you know, answering a question that is particularly worded in the moment. And if they didn't hear the exact wording, they can't answer in a reasonable right. way. Um, but playing with the costs and benefits, we have, uh, I'll take a, you know, a, a rough estimate of like 80% of our studies uh, are all color coded answers of various sort. Very cool. So you're getting a lot of work in remotely now, I know. And Minerva is the other place. So w remind me, what are you teaching at Minerva? So um, this upcoming semester, uh, I'm uh, teaching two different classes. Um, one is for first year students. Um, so they are all located in San Francisco. Um, and and woohoo. <laughs> yep. Uh, and uh, first year students take the same core curriculum. Uh, all of the students take all the same classes. Uh, and one of the four year long classes that they take is kind of the social science core. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'll be teaching that. Um, and then I'm also teaching a class for second year students. Uh, and in the fall semester, all of the second year students are in Seoul, South Korea. Very cool. uh, and I'll be teaching the psychology core class for students who are a social science major mm -hmm. of any sort. So whether they're economics majors or psychology majors um, or political science majors, they all take the same sort of like core social science classes. Uh, and then in year three, they end up taking much more specialized courses for whatever their particular major is. Okay, so Minerva is relatively new, right? When did it, when was it founded? Like 2009, something like that? 
Uh, no, it's more recent than that. Oh, um, wow. So okay. it just had its first group of seniors graduate. Oh, so it's new, new, new. It's new, new, new. Um, okay. Yeah. So those seniors started not four years ago, but five years ago. Okay. Uh, they were a very, very small initial test class. Um, and I think they got like free tuition and, and everything, uh, you know, because okay. they were so experimental. And, and part of the deal, you know, they had all these perks, but they also had to be the initial test case. And if I'm remembering correctly what I've heard, um, they did their first year and then they had to do a gap year while a second oh. cohort did year one. Yeah, and year then they combined into year two. Um, okay. Because, you know, starting up a new university and as radically different as Minerva is, they yeah. kind of, you know, did a very small first pancake. Um, yeah. And then, you know, they did another batch and then they combined them into second years and had another first year class. So I think there have been undergraduates now for five years. So can you tell us a bit about Minerva? I know I, I just think of them as like Silicon Valley's take on rethinking education but i i don't really know a whole lot about it other than there's a lot of travel it's super new and now i know it's even new new newer than i realized so tell us a bit about minerva what makes it so unique and why did you decide to take part in that experiment yeah yeah um so there's there's a ton to say um if anyone's interested uh there's a book uh, that a lot of the initial people who were involved with starting up published called, I think, Building the Intentional University. Mm -hmm. um, and so anyone who's interested in following more can read that book. There are so many categories of things it does differently that I'm sure I won't come close to touching on all of them. Because as you said, it's kind of an approach to let's rethink higher education from the ground up, uh, combining both what we've learned in recent decades about the science of learning um, and also what new technologies can do for us, and research about what's actually useful for college graduates. Um, and there's all sorts of facts and figures that people involved with Minerva uh, like to quote about, you know, when you ask university presidents uh, how well their students are prepared, you know, they say this, and when you ask people in the business world how well students are prepared from, you know, graduating from college, they say this radically different and way more pessimistic thing, so on and so forth. Um, so, it really is sort of rethinking everything from the ground up in a bunch of ways. Um, and one aspect of it uh, is that the students travel through seven different cities across uh, the four years of undergrad. Uh, they spend their first year in San Francisco uh, and they're living together downtown in the Minerva dorm. Uh, and then every semester for years two, three, and four, um, they move to a different city around the world, always living together downtown in a Minerva dorm. Hmm. And all of the classes are discussion-based. Uh, they're small seminar format, really trying to have active learning engagement with the material. So it's not sitting in a huge lecture hall uh, with 400 other students listening kind of passively uh, as a professor says stuff at you. Uh, you go into the seminar discussion already having done a bunch of reading, maybe watching some, you know, TED Talks or lecture videos that have been recorded, um, you know, whatever pre-class work there is. Um, and then you're ready to start actually implementing and practicing the concepts that you've learned in a whole bunch of different structured activities and discussions. Um, so zero lecturing in the university. Uh, everything is uh, discussion with 19 students or fewer. Mm. Uh, and the key thing from the professor perspective uh, is that all of the seminar discussions take place over video chat. 
Um, and so there's this nice uh, coherent uh, aspect of my life now that my research is via video chat and also my teaching is via <laughs> video chat. Um, and much like... I can see now why you have such a professorly background behind you with all of your books and... <laughs> right, I, I need the students to, to know that, you know, I, I, I might know what I'm talking about because there's books behind me that who knows if I've read them or not. But I, have a, I own a library of books that implies that I might know things. Yes, it's, it has the desired effect. Okay, go on, sorry. Um, so uh, there's all sorts of cool aspects of the university and how it's really been built from the ground up. Um, I'll give you one example. And like, you know, I'm kind of pulling at random amongst many that I could choose from, um, which is uh, the first year is all about learning 80 different concepts. Um, so one of the concepts is audience. Um, so whenever you're writing a paper, having a conversation, who's your audience? I'm doing this right now, right? Like, who are you? What's your background knowledge? What do you want to know? How interested are you in this? How long should I be rambling for? At what level of detail? Right? These are all sorts of questions running through my mind. I'm thinking about whoever's going to be watching this later. You know, like how interested are they in this topic? How much should I be rambling? Like, you know, how much jargon should I be using versus not? Um, and this is something that requires a lot of practice to get right, um, you know, calibrate appropriately, get feedback from people as you try to do this. Um, and also, call to mind effortlessly. Be in a situation where, oh, you know, thinking about who my audience now is going to be particularly important um, and recognizing that you're in a situation like that. So that's one of the 80 concepts. Another one is correlation. Um, so, you know, understanding what it means for two things to be correlated, understanding that correlation does not always mean that causation is involved, mm -hmm. um, being able to think through, oh, A and B might be correlated because they're both being caused by C or whatever like that. Being able to actually run statistical tests to look at correlation. Um, so that's another one of the 80. Mm -hmm. um, so they're taking four year-long courses. Roughly 20 are introduced in each. And then they're practiced across a bunch of different contexts. And this is really inspired by research on the science of learning, where mm -hmm. you look at you know, how flexibly can physics students who have been drilled on a particular problem in a particular context actually apply it in a new context. You look at statistics students who have learned statistics and can, you know, get 100% on the final exam in a statistics class. But how good are they at thinking about, uh, you know, statistics as applied in the real world? Mm -hmm. And the results are really discouraging uh, mm -hmm. from traditional education um, because people are not very good at what's called far transfer, where you've learned something in one context, but then you recognize that it's applicable in a new context and can apply it to whatever the superficial differences are about this new context, uh, while recognizing the deep structural similarity that means the concept still applies. Um, and so here's the final most radical piece of all of this, which is, okay, they've learned these 80 concepts across year number one, um, and they received all sorts of scores on it. Um, but I don't give my students a final grade in the course, mm. because these 80 concepts are going to recur across the next three years of their undergraduate education. And they're going to be receiving scores on them from all of their other professors across all three years. And then their grade in my class is finalized just before they graduate based on mm -hmm. all of the scores they've received on this across all four years of their undergraduate education. Because the idea is these should be applicable across all sorts of different contexts. And we're gonna drill you on them and you're gonna you know, apply the idea of correlation in a bunch of contexts you weren't expecting um, and by the time you leave, 
you're going to really understand all of these concepts and be able to bring them to mind when they really matter uh, in things that superficially don't look anything like any particular learning experience you had. Um, notice how much this relies on some aspects of technology where all of the instructors need to be grading in a system that can take all of these scores together yeah. um, and be conglomerating them. And as a student, you're getting feedback all the time on these. And you can call up, show me every score and comment from a professor I've ever received on this one of the 80 concepts or this one of the 80 concepts. Yeah. Or show me which are the concepts I need to be working on the most. Um, mm. And let me see the comments on those. Um, and so it's really enmeshed in not just saying, hmm, how should we be approaching higher education differently um, and having some radical takes on that, um, but also having the technological infrastructure really specially designed uh, to support this implementation. Wow. And so what is your experience as a professor? Is it enjoyable? It, is, what, how does that compare to your traditional teaching experience? Yeah. So um, the, the one word version is that I love it, or maybe that was like three words or something. <laughs> um, but I, I think there's more nuances to say, which is that doing a really good job uh, teaching is more work than doing what you want when you're teaching. Mm -hmm. So if I'm teaching a senior seminar at a traditional university, which I've done, um, what does that mean? It means I like get together a bunch of students and I force them to read academic papers that I want to read. And then we sit around a table and we discuss them. And I don't need to have any particular plan. Uh, you know, we just discuss these papers. Maybe I do have a plan, maybe I don't, but I'm not really held accountable to it. And we discuss this stuff. Um, and then, you know, maybe I have them like submit a final paper or something and I look at the paper and I go okay you know that was reasonably impressive a minus um oh you know that didn't really impress me b um and how useful is this for the students you know, I'd like to think it's more useful than nothing I'd like to think that I've taught some transferable skills um I certainly have enjoyed it along the way you know I got to hold some people hostage and make them read some papers I want to read and then made them discuss it with me um with Minerva, actually leading them through structured activities and then providing them with formative feedback. So like after each and every class session, uh, the class will be 90 minutes, and then I'll choose at random uh, one element to give feedback on from that. Maybe it's some preparation poll, maybe it's some pop quiz element, maybe it's a section of 30 minutes of discussion, um, and I'll be providing uh, detailed feedback on a particular concept. And it's not you know, some vague, you know, oh, this, you know, I read this and it impressed me a little bit, but I see this problem with it A minus. It's mm -hmm. okay, here's a spot where you are trying to implement correlation. And on a five point rubric, uh, this counts as a three. And here's what you could have done that would have bumped you up to a four. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, you were trying to implement here the idea of system dynamics and you really didn't get it right. Mm -hmm. Um, you were, you were doing something that involved in, and I know I'm like throwing out jargon here. That's not meaningful. So you know, don't, don't worry. Like that's the point is just like, this is the level of feedback they're getting. You know, you, you tried to do something that was system dynamics, but really you were just tracking multiple causes without taking a systems dynamic approach. So this is, this is a one, um, and you know, systems dynamic approach would have involved the following content. Uh, and you know, if you included this, then you would be doing the bare minimum and getting a three on this. Mm -hmm. Um, so moment to moment, it's a lot of work. Um, you know, sometimes it's, you know, rather tedious to work through. Um, but in terms of like 
thinking, I'm actually doing good, useful work here. Um, it's way, way more satisfying. Um, uh, it, I'm reminded of, um, there's, hopefully I'm getting this right, there's research saying that like having children does not moment to moment make you happier, um, but maybe it makes your life satisfaction higher. Mm. Um, and I kind of think about that in terms of doing a good job teaching. Um, mm where, you know, sure, I could be at a traditional university where I have almost no oversight on my teaching. I'm not held accountable on it. I put in the amount of work that I want to. Uh, I'm not really using evidence-based practices about what helps student learning. Um, and moment to moment, yeah, I'd be having a much better time. Um, and instead, I'm at a place where I feel much higher career level satisfaction. And moment to moment, it's usually a great deal of fun as well. Um, but, you know, there are some drawbacks. It's a lot more structured time where I'm actually held accountable to doing a good job. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. That's so fascinating. Um, we're actually over time, but I have just loved hearing about your work and the four levels and the 80 themes. <laughs> I don't know how you keep all of those 80 straight, but I'm sure it just becomes second nature once you're using them all the time with your students. Well, that's the goal. And I'm not responsible for all of them. Um, okay. So, you know, I mean, I, I actually am free to give scores on ones that are not in my core, you know, quarter that I'm teaching them. Mm -hmm. um, but the ones that I most often score are the 20 that I'm responsible for teaching. Right. Um, and then uh, fortunately, there's a giant Slack channel for all of the professors where if you're trying to give scores on something that you don't feel as confident on the scoring about, you can say, hey, I'm trying to score, you know, this thing uh, in the humanities called medium, um, where it's about, you know, matching the medium to the message. And like, you know, I'm, I'm preparing to give a score of four, but is this in fact a four? And like, you know, what do you think about this comment? So anyway. That's hilarious. A bunch of professors on a Slack channel. That it's like yeah. sums up a lot of what I think about, of what I think of when I think of Minerva, actually. That's funny. Um, cool. Well, thank you so much, Mark. I had a lot of, of fun course. hearing about all of this and yeah, so just thank you very much. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> and definitely keep in touch. I will. Thanks for listening. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or requests, contact me at www.moralsciencepodcast.com. The Moral Science Podcast is sponsored by ERA Inc., a research and design think tank that's reinventing how people interact with each other. Music throughout the program is My Kruby by Kindswider and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.